Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. It's Groundhog Day! And I'm Jim Russ. Oh my goodness, it's yep, another day in lockdown. Uh-huh. Another day in lockdown. I'm going to feature more reflections from the bunker today. Oh boy. Because I'm, da- I'm down here at the Bay House actually looking out over the water, just enjoying myself. But you know, there's been a lot in technology this week. All sorts of security breaches, hacking, as always. And people are being warned. Be careful when you work remotely at home to make certain that you handle all the security items properly. Now, this week, we're going to feature a man who was a key element in the development of 3D transistors, Chenming Calvin Hu. Who? Now, this Hu, (laughs) H-U. Oh, Hu. I know him. Yeah, so he actually was the man that... uh, allowed the semiconductor industry to continue to go to smaller and smaller feature sizes, which of course meant cheaper and cheaper computers. He's a real innovator in the area of microelectronics. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. He's a regular listener. Hi, Dr. Shirts. What's the best way to search Tech Talk and how to geek archives. I usually use DuckDuckGo for my search engine, but going into these files, going to these particular websites may be different. Do I have to go to the Stratford site first, for instance, before searching for Stratford? I really enjoy Tech Talk Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, obviously, Arnie, you like to search privately. That's what DuckDuckGo is known for. They don't share your search information with anyone. So those of you that like to search privately, DuckDuckGo is a very good choice for you rather than Google or Bing. Now, the search quality uh, when you're searching a particular site depends on how well the search engine has spidered that site. Spidering means they go from link to link to link and they make a note of all of the web pages and then they search those web pages for keywords, and they add that web page into their, into their uh, search database. Now, and it depends whether they've spidered these sites completely. Now, every website has a sitemap, which is written in a particular format for search engines to read. And the search engines go to that sitemap, and they will search all the pages on that particular website that are in the um, that are in the sitemap. Now, in our case at Stratford University, I don't update the sitemap every week when we add a new show. We I'll send it 
our sitemap takes you to the direct front page of Tech Talk, but I don't actually add every single show to the sitemap when I do it. So I'm not sure whether if you search with Google or with DuckDuckGo, you would get all of the, uh, all of the um, shows. But you can go to the Stratford University website and you can, and you can search uh, on that particular site. Uh, you can search on the Tech Talk page and we've got a search engine built for all of the, all the shows there. But I have to tell you, I did a little search and I, and I did search uh, Stratford's uh, website just with Google and it picked up nearly all of the, uh, all of the uh, episodes. So they actually are spidering our site. Uh, even though every single show is not is not on the um, is not on the site map now, but Arnie, your uh, your email sort of prompted me to think about tricks that people can use when they're when they're working with a search engine, and uh, and actually in in this day and age nobody goes to the library they use the internet to search for information, and there's some really good ways to search. Now, for one thing, if you're searching for a whole phrase and you don't want to look at every single word in that phrase, just put quotation marks around the phrase and you will get exactly what's in the phrase Mm -hmm. and not searching for every single word. So that quotation mark trick is really useful. Now, there's also another trick using a hyphen to exclude words. So, for instance, if you want to search for Mustang, but you want to look for horses, you don't want to get a bunch of, you know, websites car for pictures. the must- car pictures. What you do is you put Mustang space and you have hyphen cars. So it looked like minus cars. So you'll only search for horses and you won't get cars. So that hyphen allows you to exclude information very conveniently. Now, for instance, today when I just wanted to use Google to search the Stratford University website, you can actually have it do a search just on a website. And what you do is... You put in whatever you want to search for, say, Bill Gates. And then you type site colon techtalk.stratford.edu, and Google will only search on that particular site, which is very convenient. So you just add after your search word that you're searching for, site colon, and whatever the, um, the web address is that you want to be searching for. Now, there's also another very useful trick using the asterisk as a wild card. Suppose you're searching for a, 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 a lyric in a, in a song, and uh, and you, but you can't remember the you know the exact lyric. You you can actually put an asterisk in the middle of the of the uh, of the quotation mark phrase, and it will just that's a placeholder, and they'll just look for whatever they want. So. Um, and so that, that really works quite well if you're not really exactly sure what to do. Now, the, the one that I like is how to search for similar sites. Suppose there's a particular site that you just love, and you said, I wonder if there are any other websites that do similar things. You can search for, like, for instance, suppose you love Tech Talk. Are there other options for Tech Talk that are just as good? You could search in no, Google. No, the answer is no to that. No, not you just, couldn't. Never, never, not, not just as good, no. Not just as good. Well, they, they would be related, but not as good. <laughs> what you could do, you could do related colon techtalk.stratford.edu, and it will give you all the related websites. So suppose you're interested in a, like, a particular kind of news site that you like. Then you just put in related, 
than the web address of the news site that you like, and it will give you all the other news sites that are related to that. Those are just a few of the tricks that, that I like to use on Google. And I think the, the, the more efficient you are at using these search engines, the better you're going to be at using the Internet as your virtual library. We got an email from Dutchie in North Carolina. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm in Zoom meetings every day for work and for school. Now, I'd like to liven up my meetings a bit by using the Snapchat filters, but I can't figure out how to do it. Help! I, I need you to show them. I need to show up at my next meeting as a giant cat. Dutchie well, from Carolina. Interesting. <laughs> Go continue on. I have something to add at the end. So here's the thing. Uh, if you've ever used Snapchat, you can, you can, you, they have filters that will turn you into a donkey or to a, a mushroom, or you can, or you, they'll put a flower hat on your head. There are all sorts of filters to do all sorts of interesting things. Now, the nice thing is this Snapchat these Snapchat filters are available for other apps, but you have to download the application onto your laptop or your computer. You download Snap Camera, Snap Camera, which allows the full lens studio to be available during video chats. So you can make your Zoom calls looking like anything you want with any kind of special effect or any kind of colorful background. Now what you do, you start by downloading the Snap Camera app from your, for your desktop, then you make and then you make certain your now what you want to do you set up your snap camera for whatever filter you want to use, and that'll be the and whatever filter is set up for snap camera is the one that you use in the Zoom meeting because you can't change the filter once you're in the Zoom meeting from within Zoom. Then once you've got your snap camera set up with the filter that you want, log into your Zoom account, and then go to settings within Zoom and select video, and from there select camera. And instead of getting the default camera on your laptop, select Snap Camera. And then all the Snap Lens features will appear when you have your Zoom meetings. And you will be in that garb as long as you have the Snap Camera activated. Now, if during the meeting you want to get rid of this, uh, this, this cat look, you can you can simply go back and select the default camera and it'll go you'll go back to normal view. So that actually could add liven things up. There there was a case. There was you know I was reading about the CEO. He didn't know much about computers. His kids went onto his Zoom account <laughs> and they installed a filter and had him look like a donkey. So he <laughs> he, he 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 logged into the Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> the Zoom meeting, and of course, everybody else saw him as a donkey. He he wasn't really paying attention. And he had no and, idea. He had and no they're probably and just the, falling on the floor. And the whole meeting, he was this donkey. And and then what? And the people told him about it. Then he looked down and he said, "Oh my goodness, what am I going to do?" But he didn't know anything. He he, he didn't, didn't know how to he didn't know how to change it. He could make it go away, right? He could he could not make it go away. Oh, so wow. he finished the entire meeting as a donkey. And then after the meeting, he had a very serious discussion with his children. I bet he did. But you know <laughs> that what? Was, okay. Yes. No, no, it's okay. that's okay. I was going to say, uh, I saw something on TV a couple weeks ago where you can actually invite a farm animal to uh, uh, your virtual meetings. In fact, their, their website, dangrooster, one word, dot com, the headline is, 
Farm Animal Virtual Meetings. Invite this ASS to your next <laughs> meeting, and it's a picture of a donkey. Fifty is it, bucks. Is it, is it a real? Is it a real, real donkey? This a is a farm. Donkey. You can pick. Oh them. my! They have all wow. different kinds of farmyard animals that you can pick uh, to to join your Zoom meeting. There's a calendar. Pick your date and time, and fifty dollars for ten minutes. Wow. That sounds like fun. I, you know, I think people need to have fun with these Zoom meetings. You, you know, know so that it's we're it's not so. Point, we're getting to a point where we need some laughs, right? Yeah. After nine weeks, of this we do. Oh, there's one more thing you can do with Zoom. You What's can that? add your own custom background. Oh, right. And yeah. So, so what you could do is you 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 know, last time you were on vacation in uh, say Paris, you're you're you, you've got a picture of the Eiffel Tower. You could put that in the background. So it looks like you're there in Paris for the Zoom meeting. Or you could so, come up with something even crazier than that. You never know. You, like, you could do anything. Yeah. Like flames licking at the back of your head or something. You could you, you you could come up with all sorts of creative things. So all you have to do, you log into Zoom again, and then you go to settings, and then you go to meeting settings, and make certain that virtual background is toggled on. Then you head back to the uh, settings again, and you'll see on the left, you'll see something called virtual background. Click on that, and you can pick one of Zoom's virtual backgrounds, or you can say, I want to upload a picture, and you just upload a picture from your vacation uh, photos, and then you, you, you can then activate that, um, that, that background. Now, you want to upload a high-resolution uh, image. And they also zoom since they're putting this over the background that you got. They recommend that the actual background behind you is sort of a uniform lighting, and it's yeah. like kind of one color, so it's easy for them to identify you in front of the background. And once you do that, you can have any background you want. So that ought to spice up these Zoom meetings just a little bit. Just touch. We got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, Dr. Shirts. Will you be updating the April 18th edition of Profiles in IT? Now, that's when I featured Neil Ferguson. He was the man behind the coronavirus modeling. He worked at Imperial College, and he was the man who said we've got to have absolute lockdown in order to, in order to, uh, in order to keep it from spreading and overwhelming the healthcare systems. Well, Neil Ferguson... Somebody saw him inviting people to his home. He was having an affair. They went to his home and during the lockdown, and that was on the newspaper, and he ended up resigning from Imperial College. It's kind of just a little update. <laughs> that, yeah, I think I did hear that, yeah. So apparently he was not locked down enough. But, you know, no. this, this, this whole um, lockdown thing was, um, you know, if— you you think about it. There were different approaches that could be taken. Sweden decided not to do the lockdown. They decided to simply isolate those who were older in the population and just let everybody else continue working. At this point, nearly 80% of the people in uh, Sweden have gotten coronavirus, and they're all young, so they really had almost no impact. So they're working and on now herd they, immunity, right? And now, now they have herd immunity in Sweden, yeah. They've heard immunity in Sweden and everybody was like highly critical of Sweden. They said, you're sacrificing your citizens. And in fact, that was probably the best approach. Now, WHO, that's also who mm -hmm. WHO World who? Health Organization. Yeah. Who the World Health Organization. Now they're saying that Sweden did, took the right approach. And, you know, only uh, like six weeks ago, two months ago, they were saying that Sweden was doing absolutely the 
the wrong approach. So uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of um, insight that could be learned from it. If you look at what they did in New York State, the most vulnerable population were in the rest homes and retirement homes. Mm-hmm. So what did the governor do? He required them to take the coronavirus patients in the rest homes and the um, and the um, retirement homes. He required them to do that because they said they're going to put coronavirus people on the protected class and you cannot deny them service. So he sent coronavirus right into the rest homes. Right. New York 1,800 people died. Yeah, we know how that worked out. Yeah, and so what New York did, all the young people who weren't gonna, wasn't going to have impact, they had to sit at home. They couldn't work, and they sent coronavirus to the most vulnerable people in the population. That's exactly the opposite mm-hmm. of what Sweden did. Right. So I, I think there's a lot to be learned on this uh, modeling, and maybe the um, uh, Oxford University model was better than the— uh, Better than the Imperial College model. We went through all that last a couple yeah. of few weeks ago. We got an email from Emma in Fairfax, Virginia. Dear Tech Talk, about three years ago, I paid to have a website built for me in WordPress. Now, at this time, I've never been asked to pay anything for the WordPress program at all. And I'm still using it. I was wondering, how do they make any money if they give away their software for free? Emma in Fairfax. Well, Emma, the company behind WordPress is Automatic. That's with two T's at the end, automatic. And according to their about page, they've got around 1,180 employees, and uh, they're located in 75 countries. So that does mean they're making money, Emma, but they're not making money on the free version of WordPress. Now, WordPress, while the WordPress platform is free, Automatic offers a wide range of premium add-on products that enhance and protect the WordPress blogs in various ways. And you can see a list of these premium services on the right side of the page. That's where they make their money. For instance, they've got something called Vault Press. And that's basically a plugin that automatically backs up your blog. And you pay so much a month to have Vault Press installed in your system. They also have something called WooCommerce, W-O-O Commerce. It's another popular plugin, plugin, and that's probably the most popular for WordPress. That's their cash cow. And it allows you to take a blog and turn it into an online business with shopping carts and sales and everything else. So um, eventually people start out with the free version, and then they want to enhance what they have. And they do end up paying some monthly fees to WordPress for their plugins. So as you can see, they actually do make money. And you're taking the free version, but I suspect you'll eventually want to upgrade and get one of those plugins so that you, for instance, could back up your blog. Well, I think it'd be a pretty good idea. We got an email from John in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I take lots of pictures with my phone and then transfer them to my computer. Now, when I right-click on a photo and look at the properties, that would be the metadata, it always displays the name of my phone, but my name as photographer is never mentioned. Now I've seen a lot of other photos where people have their name in the metadata as author. How can I add my name to the metadata on the photos that I take? Now my computer is an Asus laptop with Windows 10, John in Baltimore. Well, John, if you use Photoshop or any other image editing app, there's a great chance that that program is a tool for editing your photos metadata. Most image editors have that capability. However, you can easily add 
their metadata, your photos, even you don't, even if you don't use editing software, just by using Windows itself. What you want to do is just follow the steps below. You right-click on the photo, then you select properties, and then at the top there's some tabs. You collect the, the detail tab, and then you go down to the line that says authors, and you click on that line. I had to click twice, and a little box opens up, and then uh, I could type in my name, and then it says add author, and I would cl click on add author, and then it would be added. After you're done adding your name to the author line, you just click the OK button, and it closes the uh, it closes the properties box. So it's very easy to change. Now, but please remember that doesn't really protect your photo because the next person could steal your photo, and they could do the same thing you would do, and they could put their name in it. That's why you have copyright protection. That's the purpose to protect your photos. But that was a good uh, a good question. Good luck with that, John. I couldn't find a way to, auto to automate it. Now, it turns out that some phones will allow you to add your name to the metadata as you take the picture. Um, I couldn't find a way to do that on my iPhone. I, I'm, 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 I may still find it, but I could not find a way to automate doing that on the iPhone. The iPhone just loves to put down photo taken by iPhone. They don't want to they don't want to share any yeah. any of the any of the joy. We got an email from June in Burke. Dear Tech Talk, I'm having problems activating my phone. I lost my last iPhone, and I'd set up two-factor authentication for my iCloud account. Now I can't log into the iCloud because it sends an authentication code to my lost phone. I'm stuck. What should I do, June and Burke? Well, June, uh, with two-factor authentication, you've learned the hard way. You always need more than one way to communicate. You just can't have your phone number. So I always have with two-factor authentication, I'll have my phone number plus I'll have another email account. And then if the phone number doesn't go, the email account has always already been registered and set up so they can send the two-factor authentication to the email account. It's really dangerous to only have one source for the two-factor authentication because in fact, you may not have that one source. Something could happen. I mean, I, I did it because I maybe I would be traveling and wouldn't have my phone, so I could simply do two-factor authentication, send it to my email account, and I could still, for instance, um, well, if I wanted to log onto my bank account, I've got both an email address as well as a phone number registered, so I could use, use either one of those. Now, what you're going to have to do, June, you're going to have to call the Apple Help Desk and you're going to have to prove to them who you are. So they're probably going to give you a series of grilling, grilling questions to prove that you are, in fact, who you are. Because there's something out there called SIM card hijacking, and this is what they're worried about. Where, And this has been a particular big problem with people stealing Bitcoin caches. Somebody will have a Bitcoin account. They'll set up two-factor authentication thinking that they're safe. And then someone will, through hacking, get a copy of their password to their Bitcoin account. And then they'll hijack their SIM card through social engineering. And so it could be that, June, you actually would be looking like a SIM card hijacker trying to hijack somebody's SIM card. And then once they have hijacked the SIM card, they log into the Bitcoin account and they take all the bitcoins, and those are not traceable. And that has happened a lot. 
So you're going to have to work hard to prove who you are, and I think you'll probably be able to do it. Uh, but um, good luck with that, June, and let me know how that all works out. Listen, we love your emails. Yep. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. More about Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. Be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Cheng Min Calvin Hu. H-U. I'm not going to do the bad joke again. No, thank you. He was a Chinese Taiwanese electrical engineer who specialized in microelectronics, and he's best known as father of the three-dimensional transistor, Uh the FinFET, F-I-N-F-E-T, FinFET. I'm sure you're going to tell us what that means. Uh, I'm certainly going to tell you that. I certainly am. He was born July 12th, 1947 in Beijing, China. And much to the chagrin of Beijing, he moved, his family moved to Taiwan, and he was raised in Taiwan. Now, who was a curious child? Uh-huh. <laughs> he conducted stovetop experiments that on seawater. Is scary. Yeah, I don't know what kind of stovetop experiments on seawater. I think— And he also— what do you, I don't know what that would be. Well, I think when you boil seawater, somehow there's a way to capture the salt. Maybe that's what he was trying to do. Boiling oh, the maybe, salt. Oh, up. maybe he, he might have been distilling the water and leaving the salt in the pan. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of going to the store and buying salt, he said, "Well, Mom, I'll just get some seawater and I'll, I'll I'll get the salt for you. I'll make it for you. I'll make it for you." He also liked dismantling and reassembling alarm clocks. He just liked to tinker with stuff. Now, as he approached the end of high school, he was still interested in science and mostly chemistry. He was interested in. But instead of targeting a chemistry degree, 
he he applied for electrical engineering at National Taiwan University. And he was, uh, he just decided he was going to go. This was back in when electronics was just taking over and Silicon Valley was dominating the world. And he just thought, well, I should get into, uh, I should get into electrical engineering and semiconductors. In 1968, that was his last year of college, he, uh, he finally decided that semiconductors would be his focus. There was a visiting professor that came there that was giving some guest lectures and he, uh, from the U.S., and he said, yeah, I think this really looks interesting. So he applied to graduate programs in the United States. In 1969, he, um, he started his master's degree at Berkeley, U- U- University of California at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. He joined a research group working on metal oxide semiconductor transistors, MOS transistors, metal oxide semiconductor transistors. It turned out that this, if you have metal and an oxide and a semiconductor, that particular, that particular MOS device has a, has a particular feature that allows it to function as a transistor and you can put it and you can use it as an amplifier. And so he was working on those. And of course you want to look at the properties of the oxide, the properties of the semiconductor and, and he was, did research on that. So he completed his uh, master's degree in 1970. But then he decided, you know, semiconductors is really kind of boring. And the new hot topic was optical circuits, electro-optical circuits. So he did his research on it for his PhD in electro-optical circuits. Because the thought was that electronics is eventually going to poop out, but not be able to go fast enough, and maybe we can have all optical switches and, and optical communication on board a chip to get super high speed. So he thought this would be a great area to work. So he did his PhD thesis on integrated optics. Integrated optics, putting everything on a flat planar surface with uh, planar waveguides running on top of the system. And that, at that time, was a very hot area. It, it turned out that integrated optics didn't go as far as people thought, but at that time, it was a hot field. So he completed his PhD in 1973, and he went on to MIT to continue his work. But he always felt that he should try to contribute something to the world. And if you remember, back in 1973, we had the big oil embargo. Do you remember that, Jim? Mm-hmm. I sure do. And it was like, what was that? Jim, was that was that Jimmy Carter? Was he was he in at that time? Like was it, Jimmy Carter? Yes, it was. 80, no, that's no, no, that except, was Reagan. Reagan. That was the oil embargo, and uh, oil prices were going through the roof, and he felt that he needed to do something to help the world and not just sit work on integrated optics and write papers. So he decided to switch all of his energies and work on low-cost solar cells because he thought that was the way to solve the problem with, uh, you know, lack of oil. So in 1976, he returned to Berkeley as a professor this time to do research on energy topics, uh, solar cells, hybrid cars, and, of course, that brought him back to semiconductors. And it turned out when he went back to Berkeley in 76, there was a boatload of government funding on energy-related projects because the government wanted to get us out of this conundrum of an oil shortage. But it turned out that by 1982, the funding for energy research just dried up. And, uh, you know, it couldn't get any more grants. But it turned out that semiconductors were hot. 
in Silicon Valley. Well, it's Silicon Valley. Right. And so there were a lot of projects that were supported by industry where industry was supporting research at Berkeley in semiconductors. So in uh, 1982, he decided to take his sabbatical leave. Uh, uh, this Every seven years, professors take off one year and they'll, they'll work someplace else. That's called sabbatical leave. And he, he, went, uh, he went on leave and he went to work for National Semiconductor in Santa Clara, California. They're in Silicon Valley. And he was working on um, field effect transistors. And what he noticed there, see, they were making the idea in order to get uh, the density of transistors higher so you could cram more onto a chip and, and reduce the cost of, uh, reduce the cost of, uh, you know, of processing. He noticed that as they got smaller and smaller, you started having weird effects, you know, cause you, they, you were getting down to the quantum level and, and it turned out that field effect transistors, as they were made smaller, they, 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 they had long-term behavior where they start degrading over time. And so he was trying to figure out what causes them to degrade when they, when they get very small. And so he decided to attack this particular problem because it was, uh, it was a huge problem in Silicon Valley. He thought he could work on it. So he and a group of students developed what he called the hot carrier injection theory for predicting reliability in MOS semiconductors, metal oxide semiconductors. And that ended up being a, a core model that the industry used to predict reliability on these devices. There was another reliability problem that he was working on, that oxides break down over time, particularly when the oxide gets below... Uh, you know, a nanometer in thickness or half a nanometer in thickness. It's there. There are so few atoms there to make up that layer that the the oxide just breaks down. Carriers tunnel through, and it's a real it's a real problem. So he was trying to analyze that behavior. So he developed a very deep understanding at the molecular level about how transistors worked, and he developed two tools that became industry standards. One was the Berkeley Reliability Tool. B-E-R-T, BERT, <laughs> and also the Berkeley short channel IGFIT model, which is another, uh, another type of field effect transistor called the BSIM. And these two transistor models became the standard transistor models that the industry used as they were scaling down to smaller and smaller sizes. Now, he taught his students to sort of visualize where the electric field was distributed in a device. See, I, this this harkens me back to my uh, to my PhDs. Mm -hmm. I was I was modeling semiconductor lasers, and we would inject electrons from one heterojunction and holes in from another, and then they would recombine to form light. And I would actually calculate all of the uh, diffusion equations for electrons and holes. And I'd use the what they call the ambipolar diffusion equation, which had both positive and negative charges. So this this brought this, as we're reading this, this brought back a lot of memories. And you do want to visualize how the electric fields are doing it because you can get so hung up with equations that if you don't step back and visualize it, because you know that at every boundary the electric field, the slope and value has to match. So you can almost treat the electric field like sort of a pliable piece of rubber. And you're sort of moving it around. And so if you start thinking of it in physical terms, uh, all of a sudden the equations begin to make a lot more sense. And you can invent things visually 
instead of having to crank out all the equations. And that's how he taught his students, which I think was very good, very good way to do it. Now, by the mid-90s, we had a problem. The feature size was around 350 nanometers, and they didn't think they could shrink much smaller. And they thought that Moore's Law would soon end. Now, Moore's Law, Gordon Moore was the guy that founded Intel, and he had a law that said every two years, the density of electron of uh, transistors on a chip will double. So the density will double every two years. And so, and that had been going on year after year after year, but they were, look, they said, but eventually we're going to get quantum effects that are hitting in where now the, we're down to the individual atoms or molecules and, and you can't go any smaller than that. And so, and so they were, they were worried about, coming to an end of the golden years in Silicon Valley when Moore's law ended. So he saw, who saw a fundamental problem? And here, here was the problem. Now I'm going to try to explain this, how he came up with a 3D transistor without being too technical. What happened is as you, as you make the, as you make the, um, tra the transistor smaller and smaller, it's easier for electrons to go from the source to the from go through the transistor and um, and it's um, it's easier for them to, to go through the channel and leak through the channel and that's called leakage and in order to stop that leakage you have to get a bigger and bigger electric field to sort of drive them out of the channel and that and in order to get a bigger electric field without without having a higher voltage you have to get a thinner and thinner oxide so the belief was that if you make a smaller and smaller field effect transistor, you're going to have to get thinner and thinner oxides, and eventually the oxide breaks down. So they thought the oxide was the fundamental limit here. And so he got an idea. Around 1995, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, was trying to come up with a technology where we could get a 25 nanometer gate. Right now, they're at 350 nanometers, 25 nanometers. That'd be a huge factor of 10 improvement in, in feature size. And so they put out a request for, for proposal, and he was flying to, to Japan to Japan that uh, day. He, he got a couple, couple of his buddies together. He said, look, why don't we bid on this thing? I've got an idea. So on the, on the airplane ride to Japan, he sketched out this uh, three-dimensional transistor, which is called a FinFET thin FET, field effect transistor, and he sent it back to his, to his team back at Berkeley, and they submitted a proposal to DARPA, and it was awarded. And what he did that was uh, innovative, it used to be that the channel, everything was planar, and the channel was actually in the plane. He simply took the channel, and he put it as a vertical fin to the substrate. And then the channel was very thin, but it was a vertical fin. And then he could wrap the gate around three sides of the fin. And once you could wrap the gate around three sides of the fin, you would be able to get a high electric field in the channel without having a very thin oxide because you had so much gate in contact with the, the channel. And so that was called the field effect. It was a field effect transistor because you're using an electric field to modulate the current going through the channel. And because, there because the channel was looked like a fin coming out of the top of the substrate, they called it a fin FET, a fin <laughs> FET, okay? And so he was the father of the 3D transistor. And he, he actually 
they actually fabricated this at Berkeley in 1999. They published a major paper uh, where they published the results, not only the, and they showed that the theory and the experimental results matched, and there was widespread interest in this thing. So he sort of said, finish that up. He said, okay, I think this is a great breakthrough. And industry, industry started working on it. But they still had more headway to go before they would end up running out of space on Moore's Law with the tr traditional planar technology. So they just continued trekking down, getting better and better with planar technology. And in the backdrop, they were working on the three-dimensional technology. So during that lag time on the FinFET, he took a three-year break from Berkeley and went back to Taiwan and worked at the uh, semiconductor, uh, uh, semiconductor company there in Taiwan, TSMC, because he wanted to pay back to his home country what all they had given him in, in, his, uh, in his education. This guy, everything he does is focused on giving back, to, giving back to the world. That's why I like this guy. So after three years at TSMC, he went back to Berkeley, continued his research and, uh, on that semiconductor devices, and he continues to support all the transistor modeling tools that they gave to that they, that they uh, provided to industry so they could scale down. Now, IEEE called him a microelectronics visionary when it presented him in 2009 with a medal for achievements critical to producing smaller yet more reliable high-performance integrated circuits. FinFET technology swept the industry, and Moore's law did not come to an end at 25 nanometers, although it will eventually reach the end of Moore's law. Intel was the first company to actually use the FinFET in production in 2011. In other words, there's about a 10-year lag, and this is very common in technology. When a major breakthrough comes out, it's typically 10 years before it's deployed in production. That's, that You see that over and over again. Even today, and they, as things have accelerated? Yeah, there's, hmm. there's, there's kind of... You see, because people don't people don't know what the re, people don't see the research. Mm -hmm. They just mm -hmm. they just see something coming out of the coming out of the pipeline. Sort of a, it's sort of everything is driven by standards, and there's a there's a very so he was doing research to see where they hadn't come to the end of Moore's law. They still had more headway using the planar technology. So they had ten years of planar technology headway, and when that ran out, they could go to the three D technology. But this is what Intel said about him, that this FinFET is the most radical shift in semiconductor technology in over 50 years. This had an unbelievable effect. By 2015, all the top servers, computer servers, all the computers, all Android phones, all iPhones use FinFET processors. So all the Luxury that we are enjoying with this low-cost technology was allowed to continue because of the FinFET technology. Mm -hmm. Now they're down to 7 nanometer feature size. So when he started his research, they were at 350 nanometer feature size, and they thought they were getting close to Moore's Law. And the FinFET technology allowed them to get below 25 nanometers and now down to 7 nanometer feature size. In... Uh, 2016, he got the National Technology and Innovation Medal from President Obama. He's, off, he's authored five books, including the 2010 Semiconductor Device Textbook. He has 900 research papers and has granted over 100 patents. This is one of these research guys who has really made an impact. 
And I'm telling you, he wasn't going after money. He just wanted to give back to the world. There's which all you want to know about Chen Ming Calvin, who the father of the 3D transistor, it's the a, FinFET. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and 104.5 FM. Stand by. We're about to play the pop quiz. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So you can sit down now in the virtual studio but that we have are. here. You can't see it, yeah. but they are. I can't. Oh, that's very good. Well, this is not simply a radio show. This, no. of course, is a classroom of the airways. Yes. And we have to assess whether the audience has been learning. Actually, the students, we don't have an audience, we have students, right. have been learning, and we assess that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms when they open, and you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. None of this just pass-fail stuff here. No, no, no pass-fail. No, absolutely not. Earlier in the show, I talked about Chen Ming Calvin Hu, H-U, he was, of course, the father of the 3D transistor, the FinFET. And as a child, he was very curious. What kind of experiments did he do, or what sort of activities did he do that showed his interest in, uh, in technology and in science as if a young you know child? know the answer to today's question, it's that time. Phone, pick it up, dial. If you're calling from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're doing stovetop experiments or shoveling out from a May snowstorm in Canada, 
Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's powered by Purell, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Well, thank you very much. Let's talk about <laughs> mobile scanning applications. I'm down here at the uh, at the Bay House. I don't have a scanner. And there are times when you want to scan something yeah. into a PDF and, 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 and email it to someone. And so what do you do if you don't have a scanner? I don't know. And you can't. And everything is shut down. So you can download free scanning apps for your cell phone. And they're really quite good. So I'm going to give you three of them, and they're, they're, they have different different advantages. The, the one that I like the best is Adobe Scan. Adobe Scan. It's uh, free, and it makes scanning, editing, and file sharing easy. It's not picky about formats to scan. You can scan a magazine, forms, business cards, whiteboards, handwritten notes. It scans documents into PDFs and offers multiple capture modes, and it really does quite a good job of creating your PDF file. Now, Adobe Scan uses Adobe AI technology to sharpen handwritten text, remove blemishes, blemishes and shadows. I don't know if you, ever, if you tried to take a picture or something to get shadows on, the, yeah. in the, on it. It just gets rid of those shadows. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also, um, uh, you know, you can open your PDFs. You can note them. You can annot annotate them with Adobe Reader. And... Um, it's also easy to convert your scanned document into a into a fill out and sign document if you want. Now, there's all that is actually I think the best option. Adobe Scan it's free. There's also Genius Scan. Now, Genius Scan uh, is nice. It's a free version. It's got unlimited high resolution scans and basic uh, document security. Now, if you want to do optical character recognition. And, uh, and you want to save it to the cloud, you're going to have to get the premium version, which is Genius Scan Plus. And that's $4.99, $4.99 on Android, or $7.99 on iOS, on the iPhone. And that lets you unlock optical character, uh, optical character recognition and, and other, uh, other options like, you know, like scanning for text. Now, the last one that I would recommend is, worth, is Microsoft Office Lens. That's free. Now, it'll work in anything from whiteboards to handwritten notes. It's, uh, it uses optical character recognition to identify printed handwritten text. So it'll, it'll convert handwritten text to, you know, to, to, to typed characters. Now, it's hand, this is very handy if you're scanning lots of text-heavy documents. You've got a note you, want to, you can scan. And then you can convert your scanned images to PDF, to Word, to PowerPoint, and you can save it to OneNote or to OneDrive. So those are the three that you could and try out to which one you like. Adobe Scan, uh, get the free version of Genius Scan, and get Microsoft Office ones. Give them a try, and you can operate, you know, in lockdown without a scanner. There you go. All right, we have somebody who'd like to play our little game. Let's go to line one. This is Thomas calling us from Bowie. Thomas, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, Doc, go ahead and ask the question. Okay. Earlier in the show, I talked about Chengming Calvin Hu. Uh, he, of course, is the father of the 3D transistors. What sort of experiments did he do as a young child to sort of indicate his interest in science? He used to boil water on his parents' stove in an effort maybe to get salt out of the water or to separate the water. Very good. Essay Very question good. today. Excellent. 
Excellent. Thank you uh, very much. You're going to hang on here for just a second. We're going to send you back over to Andrew. Thanks, Thomas, for listening. And uh, we're going to get the, your information and send the um, prize out to you. It is uh, – we're going to continue on. By the way, speaking of desalinization, Doc, you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, so I had seen something on the NOAA website just now while you were talking about that because I was wondering about this stovetop experiment. And uh, they actually have these little pods that they take to areas of the world where the, where you can't get fresh water. Things yes. that float in the water and desalinize, uh, I guess that's the right word, seawater yep. so people can drink it. Pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, they yeah. probably I'll probably orbit it with solar panels, exactly. I would think. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Very good. Let's continue. Well, on. let's have— Let's have some reflections from the bunker. Okay. We need reflections never, from the bunker music. I have to work on that. Yeah. Now, you see, you've heard this phrase before, never waste a good crisis. Yes, right. Yes. So last week, uh, in that in the theme of never waste a good crisis, I, I talked about doing uh, personal improvement, learning, figuring out what you like to do, mm-hmm. using this time to reflect and to learn and to develop what is probably the most miraculous learning engine in the world, the human mind. And it's a tremendous opportunity to do that. Now, today I'm going to talk about innovating the company and never waste a good crisis. (laughs) This COVID-19 shutdown has forced many businesses to change ways. And it's creating a new normal. People are working from home. And so the key is to accept the fact that we have to change and innovate and become better because of the change. Now we've got a world of internet-connected computers through the internet. Phones are connected 24-7. It shifted our perspective. We're now connected even if we're not in the same room. And so remote operation can be effective as in-person operation. And now uh, businesses are beginning to accept it. Now the young people have known for years that you can operate remotely because they just live off their cell phone. It's old fogies like us that didn't didn't (laughs) like it. So now the old fogies are living the remote world, whether they like it or not. With varying degrees of success. That's right. So now it's time to take advantage of this process to innovate how we operate as a business, to increase our efficiencies, to change the way we do workflow. Now, that's how we approach the situation at Stratford. Back in uh, late February, early March, We sat down, we said, you know, we're going to have to go remote. We're going to have to have purely online classes. So we sat down and organized all of our tools, organized our workflows so that we could have a remote advising system for all of our students, so that we could have remote financial aid systems. Students could go online, they could do everything remotely. All of our staff could work remotely. We could have remote student support. Uh, We expanded our online learning platform to to be more robust. We started creating lectures for the students to enjoy. And what we discovered when we went through this process is that in certain regard, we are actually much more efficient. Like I had a backlog of financial aid files when we were at financial aid departments at the campus. Once we went remote, the financial aid offices became much more efficient. The, mm. back, the backlog went away in about a week and a half. Good. And, and students were getting their phone calls answered much more quickly. And so we also found that the, um, that, that the students liked all of this uh, recorded lecture because they, they could go back and they could look at the lecture after it was over. And so it turned out that we actually revamped 
our entire administrative system. We revamped our entire academic system to go online. And then we we started doing uh, things that we normally would do, would do with labs. We started in IT. We started, you know, we have streaming apps. Students can get their own virtual servers. They can install a Linux machine, a Microsoft uh, Windows machine. Uh, they can do that uh, virtually going through our um, going through our data center. So all the IT tools that our students had in the lab, they actually have remotely. Uh, on our nursing, we we now have uh, we now have digital simulations, so our students can actually start doing clinical work through remotely, and the students like it. And we've and we've been doing videos for our culinary students. Uh, on how to cook things, then we send them little food packets, and um, and they and they can run experiments at home. So we'll eventually probably evolve where we're far more remote than we were before, and we will then use our cl- ca- campuses when students have to come in for specific lab work that can't be done remotely, mm-hmm. or they want to do group work and work together. So the campuses are probably going to become adjuncts or support active support locations for our online program. And I think this is probably going to change the face of education for a long, long while. For you guys, I think the public system has a long way to go. There are big problems in the public school systems with this. But see, it's an opportunity. Uh, The thing is, you've got a crisis like that, then most of the normal naysayers that would block it – We'll say, okay, well, we don't have a choice. But who runs so it, the school system, the government? Yeah, but there, uh, but there are examples, even in the public school system, of good leaders. I mean, the system collectively may be broken, but within the system, there are good leaders. And I think, uh, I think somebody could could through could provide leadership to uh, to be in. And and I'm and I also believe that teachers. That teachers I cannot believe that we are almost out of yeah. time. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.